0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given to us life, life through Jesus Christ, who conquered death so that we might have life in him. Lord, we are here as servants of the Most High God, called by you before the foundations of the earth were laid. We are here to learn more about the way you work within us, the way you work through us, the way you work for your glory. Even when it seems all around us have fallen away, Lord, we desire to cling tightly to you, even as David did when he looked about and saw that the, faithless had, or the faithful had vanished, leaving him in what seemed to be an island of despair. God, thank you so much for giving us your word, for giving us the spirit of truth. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your church and body of believers that we can work together to strengthen one another in the faith as we stand against the evil one. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats, everyone. This year marks 25 years since I finished high school. I graduated Hood River Valley High School in June of 1996. So that means it was more than 25 years ago that I read George Orwell's 1984, because I think that was in either 10th or 11th grade English that that was an assignment of mine, to read George Orwell's 1984. Have you read that book? Has anyone here read George Orwell's 1984? I'm sharing it with you because something about this past year, I don't know if it's been the response to COVID-19, wokeism, the shutting down of churches, the shutting down of schools, uh, riots, shooting rampages, something has drawn me to the dystopian novel. And so this is like the sixth or seventh one that I've started to work through this year. Something about this year has led me to pick those back up again. But as I was devoting time this week to Psalm 12, I recognized something in the scriptures of, of why that, that genre uh, seemed to be appealing to me. It, it appealed to me because it, it's very much speaking to this present time that we're living in, it's very pertinent, pertinent to the present moment. You see, because in most of these dysfunctional governments, these authoritarian governments, the really tyrannical governments that are pictured in these dystopian novels have something in common with what David was concerned about, and that was the distortion of words. Almost always in these books... Whoever's in control takes control of the language and begins to manipulate the language, changing the meanings of words, even going so far as to doing away with history and rewriting the history. And I'll give you an example of that. In the book 1984, um, Winston, who's the main character, now catch the irony of this, he works in the ministry of truth. So Winston, who works in the ministry of truth, he has an assignment, and his work is to actually change documents, to alter what is has been put into the annals of history so that it accords with what Big Brother is saying. So this one assignment he has in particular, I, I just got started into the book, so it's for, fairly early. Uh, Winston goes into this, just this dialogue for a moment. He says... Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. And so Winston is just saying this, almost as a matter of fact, as he's going about his his daily work. And he actually delights in his work. And what comes across his desk is an assignment to go back to this periodical and rewrite it. Rewrite the article because... Uh, Whoever was in charge got it wrong. So after the fact, after the fact, now the article doesn't marry up with what actually happened. So Winston takes great delight in now fabricating this whole story so that the article won't have a blank page there. It'll just be something that accords with what actually happened. So that's all done so that Big Brother will look like he's infallible, like he hasn't made a mistake. So if someone goes back, pulls off this periodical off the shelf, oh well, that's right, that's what happened. But what truly happened is just disappears. And as the party slogan goes, who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. And this is an absolutely horrific thought if you think about it because what's taking place here is a manipulation of language, a manipulation of words. And It's horrific because one of the greatest aspects of mankind is that God has given us the ability to communicate with words. He's given us language. It really sets us apart from the animals, that we can dialogue with one another, that we can record things in a written language, that that can be passed down from generation to generation. Words are one of the most elegant and beautiful aspects of who we are as human beings, Words allow us to communicate care. They allow us to express deep feelings, deeply held held feelings. And with our words, we can share how we love others. Alternatively, words can be used to manipulate. Words can be used to tear down and to bring about corruption and to destroy what is true. When we're not careful our words more easily slip into this latter avenue of use. When we're not well versed in God's word, this can happen more easily. And we can struggle to discern if our language that we're using is true or false, if we don't have a standard to hold it up against. We can even struggle to understand the words that are coming into our ears, whether or not they're true, if we don't have a good basis for what truth is. But praise God, all is not lost. In fact, the very realization that that this could happen, you know, as we can ascend to this thought that this could actually happen, or this does happen, or this has happened, or I'm in the middle of this happening and I want to change it, that's grace, That's a grace of God given to us to realize, okay, there is a standard for truth. I am either being drawn away from that or I'm drawing someone else away from it and God can help me get back to where I need to be. That is grace. And how you react to the knowledge of that really says a lot about your eternity and where you're going to spend eternity. If we act like David did from our psalm today, if we call out to God, if we call out to him, God listens to us and he responds to our greatest need. And what is our greatest need? It's salvation. Salvation is our greatest need. For we have all sinned when we, when we bought into the lie that we knew better than God. We've all sinned in our heart first And then a lot of times that sin will manifest itself outwardly as we try to get others to buy into the folly of our sin. However, when we repent, when we call out to God and say, save me, I no longer believe I have a better answer than you, Lord, so save me, help me. He listens. He listens to us. He saves us even when we're surrounded by those who would want to destroy us, when we call out to the Lord, when we say, God, help me, he's there to respond and he provides us with our greatest need. He provides us with salvation. As David moves into this psalm today, he's very concerned about words of the wicked. In verses one through four, That's what he's going to be focused upon, is the words of the wicked. This is our first point that we're going to cover as we're looking at how God listens to the call, the call out to him, listens intently and responds to it. First, the psalmist gets into this, this heart cry and this plea with the Lord for salvation, for help. It's at the very beginning of the psalm that David recognizes that he needs something that cannot be provided for him from within him. He needs something external to him. He needs salvation. So verse 1 simply starts, save, O Lord. Save, O Lord, or help, Lord, in some of our translations. Save, O Lord, help. And I repeat what I said earlier. It is actually in a place of grace if you recognize that you need help. To simply say, God, I need help is to recognize that you're in a place where you can be helped and that God is the one that you can call out to for that help. This is a grace. And this is his love for us that we would even acknowledge that we are in a bad situation, that something needs to be changed. As Seth was leading us in our pastoral prayer. He was praising God and thanking God for the saints of old. And he mentioned Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. And I have a Charles Spurgeon quote about this very simple prayer. Spurgeon says, Help, Lord. So this prayer, Help, Lord. Spurgeon says, a short but sweet, suggestive, seasonable, and serviceable prayer. Now going back to our Ephesians the 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 armor of God this quote continues a kind of angel's sword this prayer a kind of angel's sword to be turned every way and to be used on all occasions But what brings us to such a place that we have use for a serviceable prayer a, a save me lord a help me lord What caused David to cry out this prayer? Save, O Lord. Well, we are not left long to figure out why he was in this place. Because continuing in verse 1, the psalmist writes, For the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And it continues, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double tongue, they speak. This is what put David in the spot that he needs to cry out. Help, Lord. Save, O Lord. All around me, the faithful have vanished. The speaking that is being said is is wrong. It's not right. The despair and the lament of this situation that David finds himself in It's here. It's immediately at the beginning. And what I find as I'm reading the Psalms and I'm sharing with Seth before service, one of the most helpful aspects for us as we get into the Psalms is to be reminded that our emotions are okay. God can receive them. He is big enough to have us come before him with an emotional bent, even to be angry and upset. He can receive that. He knows what to do. He's heard it before. The various emotions will not scare him away. And David here, he has a complaint. He has a very cry of his heart, even a possible exaggeration. I mean, I doubt everyone who is of any worth has vanished. But in his perspective, that's what's going on. It's actually happening. And he's directing his complaint toward God, saying, God, I need you to do something Save, O Lord. So much of my own schooling and my profession that I have has been focused on data and results. So it's helpful for me to get into the Psalms and to see that emotions are very much a, a part of our life. And God receives those and says, that's fine, I can deal with this. I can do this. This psalm and this type of writing in the Bible is known as a lament. A lament. And it's an invitation for us to say it's okay to share our hurts with God. He will listen as you stay focused upon him. And he will give you what you need to sustain you in times of severe trial, no matter where you might find yourself. So what is bothering David exactly? Exactly. He looks around and he finds that he is on his own. No faithful followers are present. What is his evidence that there are no faithful followers? It's a judgment. It's a judgment that he is making about the words that are being spoken. He says the words aren't matching up with truth. There is no one here that is faithful. The words are empty. The word translated as lies in our English Bibles or vanity in some of our translations, it's not just misinformation, but the idea behind this Hebrew word is, is like nothing. Like there is, there is absolutely worthlessness. So keep that in mind as we go through the psalm. These words that are being spoken have no value. There is nothing there. Friends, do you find yourself in a similar situation right now as to what David was finding himself in? Who's around you? Who's surrounding you? What words are being spoken? As we move along in our passage, the the psalmist we're going to find is comforted by God's response, by the truth of God's word. But even as we're just getting going and we see that David feels like he's very alone, I want to provide us with an encouragement that says that's one of the benefits of being in Christian community, that we benefit from being together. We are not alone. We recognize being a part of God's body that we're not going through this life on our own. We are provided great comfort. David finds himself alone, and he sees that all those That may have been faithful have vanished. But we, when we're together, when we're living in community, we provide comfort to one another. We can notice when one another is going through a tough time, and we can render aid. We can help each other. We can provide support and friendship. We can simply remind one another that we're not facing these troubles on our own. That is why the shutting down of church gatherings and in fact the shutting down of all gatherings does such damage because what it does is it causes isolation. It it causes a situation of of what David was finding himself in being all alone thinking that everyone had vanished. When we are isolated, we don't have our trusted friends to turn to. We don't have our teachers or mentors We don't have pastors right there or our elders to to talk with when we're in isolation. And instead, where do we receive our information? Well, we turn to where we're supposed to get our information, right? We go to social media. Or we wait for someone to send us a text with a meme in it. And we think, well, this is probably legitimate. Well, that leads us astray. That's emptiness. There's nothing of worth there. When we do try to find worth in those things that I just mentioned, we quickly realize that there is a lot of emptiness that is being shared currently on social media through just empty chatter. We seek true and meaningful words. And God wants to give those to us. And he says, I want you to know my words so well that when you see emptiness... When you see worthlessness, you can denounce it for what it is and you can say, this isn't of value. Turn away from it and look towards what is pure and good and nurture yourself on what I provide. Notice when you are being corrupted. Know God's word well enough so that as you receive words that aren't his, you can say, that's not for me. That's not going to be helpful for me and I need to turn away from it. This is what we need to see happens in these next two verses. There is this strong language that David uses to denounce what is taking place. So realize how strong this is. This is imprecations. This is where we get the term imprecatory psalm. Like there's a curse being called out by David in verses three and four. This is what he he writes: May the Lord cut off the lips all of the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Church, this is right here in our Bibles. This is the language that the psalmist is using. He's saying, cut off the lips of those who speak these things. Remove their tongues for they are vile. This is the kind of language that is it's very harsh language, language that we would have a hard time even maybe speaking. But it's here in the scriptures. It is part of this lament psalm. God can receive harsh words. And as we're moving through the psalm, I hope you realize, and as we, we, we look, that this is supposed to be taken in total. We don't just grab a hold of one part of this psalm and say, okay, that's my prayer. There is a, a series of events that's taking place and ultimately, it'll, it'll bring us to a place where, like David, there's peace in the end. But it might be kind of bumpy along the way. These are words of the severest punishment for those who utter worthless speech, for those who boast in the words that they, that they speak. But this is, like I said, part of a larger context and that's the way the psalms should be read. It's, it's easy for us to just grab a hold of one verse and say, I like this verse, and to hold on to that. But a psalm is telling a story in its, its, in its prose, in the whole way that it's written. Even in the original language, the way the, the psalm is laid out tells a story. And it's hard to see that in our English translations, but in the original Hebrew, the way they wrote their poetry, even the design of the poetry Tells a story and it drives us to something. So it's it's supposed to be taken slowly and in t- and total to get the picture of what's being conveyed here. The Psalms are very helpful for us as we're going on this journey with David. Once again, we can see that God is not afraid of our emotions. God was not afraid of David's emotions. These are strong emotions that He has. And sharing our emotions with God will not cause him to remove himself from us. He wants to know us well. And emotions are part of who we are. This is a reminder from God's word that he is okay with that. Now, practically speaking, when we're looking at an imprecatory psalm, like Psalm 12, one of the things you can ask yourself is, well, how do I... How do I receive this psalm and now pray a psalm like this? How do I pray a prayer that would be similar to this imprecatory psalm? Because that would be helpful, to have this to inform your prayers. Well, first, it helps to realize that David starts by acknowledging that he needs to be saved. So right off the bat, from the very start of this this psalm, David realizes, God, I need... To direct myself to you first because I need salvation. I need to be saved. And then he moves into what he needs to be saved from, what is bothering him so much. And he's using very plain language. He's not sugarcoating anything. But then in the middle of the psalm, David is now able to, to come to a place, and we're going to get there, where He sees that God can protect not only him, but others like him in a weakened state and will bring about the desired outcome. And then what this does is it allows the psalmist to move into an appreciation for God's word and how helpful God's word is to remind him of truth. And at the end of the psalm, there's this comparison between what is true and right and what is still vile and wrong. And David can be at a place of peace and say, God, you have brought me to such a place where I can tell the difference between the wretchedness of sin and the goodness of God. And he's at a place of peace at the end. And you can pray an imprecatory psalm in a very similar manner. You know, pick a world event right now or a national event that is horrendous and you can pray this similar pattern through that event. We can pray like this. And I believe we should lament. We are in a time, church, where lament is appropriate. It's not always appropriate, but there is a present evil that is waging war. When it seems like all is being destroyed, allow a psalm like Psalm 12 to guide your prayers. Such lamenting is something David is doing here. But next, after these imprecations that he mentions in verses 3 and 4, he is able to now go to not only what he was dwelling upon, which is the words of the wicked, but now the words of the Lord. David is able to shift his gaze away from what is worthless and put his eyes on what is worthy, the words of the Lord in verses 5 and 6. This is something I want you to remember, church, as we're Looking at this is God used David as a prophet. We're gonna use that a little bit later in our communion time. But he is, he is gifted with the gift of prophecy. And so his writing is prophetic even. He has the Holy Spirit as he's penning scripture. And in verse five, it says, in quotations, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. This is a wonderful section of scripture. The outrage being experienced by David is real because the mistreatment that he is seeing and hearing happen around him is real. He knows that this is going on, and it's going on because people that have power and have influence are misusing that power and influence to mistreat those who are poor and needy. He's having very real emotions, much like our emotions are very real, like your heart races and and your, your blood boils when you know that a child is being subjected to abuse, like That causes an emotional reaction within us. And David is having an emotional reaction. And yet he's shifting himself over now to saying, God, you know what is going on. And I can call out to you for a saving work to occur. And here now is how this passage, as I stated earlier, is is being used in a prophetic sense uttered by David. He acknowledges here that God sees. God sees those whom he cares about. Those who have no way of caring for themselves. He knows God can see them. He knows that, that God can see their mistreatment. And that when they cry out to him, even if they're crying out is simply a groan, that their suffering will not go unnoticed by God. And in like manner, as you suffer in this life, believers, as you suffer, which we all do at times, as you suffer, you will not go without being noticed by God. He will not overlook your suffering. You could be in a prominent position like King David was, or you could be a lowly child tucked away in some some corner of a house being neglected by, by parents that don't know how to treat you. God sees every bit of mistreatment that goes on on his, on his planet, in his creation. God sees this mistreatment. He hears the painful groans as they're, as they're uh, given forth from within us. And like a prize fighter, so think of this, what, what God is doing, he's arising David says he's arising, so he's like this prize fighter in the corner of a ring, like barely even breaking a sweat. It's time for another round, and God and His power just arises. He gets up and he is ready to do business. That's the picture we have of God when He hears of what's going on, perfectly poised, ready to put forth His power to bring about righteousness and judgment. God will now arise and bring about justice. But how exactly does God do this? Not in the way we may think. The salvation that comes from God doesn't always cause the immediate circumstances around us to be dealt with in the way we might like them to be. The salvation that comes from God has a lasting and an eternal effect on us. Internally, we can have peace but that doesn't mean our outward suffering goes away immediately. God works in the way he works to rescue us. And keep in mind that when he rescues us, he rescues us from the suffering of eternal hell. And he brings us to a place where we can be with him forever in glory. repeating in verse 5 and then continuing on a little further. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. And this is what he's going to do. He says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The promise made by God here is that he will place the one who is being mistreated the one who is suffering the one who needs something done for him or her it's going to place him in the safety with, for which he longs the one who calls out to him with groans and this is much like what Paul writes in, in Romans 8 26 the spirit helps us in our weakness For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God hears everything that is bothering us, even if it's just a groan. And God will do his work. He will arise. God will do his work. He will place the one who calls on him in safety. But what exactly does that mean to be placed in safety? I think we have all recognized that the word safety is maybe grossly overused right now. I mean, it's, it's like a, a parting word that's being given to us. You know, be safe. Uh, how many people have heard that as you, as you depart from someone? Be safe. Be safe. Or it's even plastered up on, on marquees. Be safe. That's not the kind of safety David has in mind here. Now, this is deeper. This is salvation. This is deliverance. This is the kind of safety that only God can bring about. It's salvation. Salvation from the consequences of our sin. That's what God can change. Our relationship to sin was destining us for an eternity in hell. And God can bring about a salvation that saves us from that. That is what we need. That's our deepest need. And that's why we have to call out to God, because he meets our deepest need. Save, O Lord. That's what David began with. Save, O Lord. And we declare, we need to be saved when we lift up that same sentiment to God. Save, O Lord. I need to be saved. And this is the good news. This is the good news of the whole story of the Bible. This is the good news that even though there is sinfulness in, the human, in humankind, it wasn't there in the beginning. We know from the study of Scripture, if you look at Genesis, in the beginning, Adam and Eve had not sinned yet, and they were able to walk and talk with God, but that didn't last very long at all before... They thought, you know what? I think God's holding back. I think he's cheating us out of some real living. And so we want to skirt around some of God's laws that he's given to us, which were very few, and eat of the fruit that he forbid us to eat from. And sin entered in. And our first mother and our first father, they ushered in sin. And we would do the same thing. And we still do the same thing. So often wanting to skirt God's law. And say, I think I can do better than what God has given to me. And that brings about sin. And it separates us from God. But we need to be saved. Because that sin enslaves us to our enemy. But our Heavenly Father knew that. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And so he provided a way of salvation. A a way of redemption. He provides everything that is needed for salvation to come. To the one who cries out, to him. He brings about our deliverance in a way that is unfathomable. He does all the work that is needed to bring about salvation. You see the consequences of sin is death and destruction and separation from God. But God paid the penalty for that sin by sending his son Jesus Christ to live as the perfect man. Jesus gave up his divine attributes to take on flesh, the same kind of flesh that we wear, brothers and sisters, and to learn how to walk in obedience as we have to walk in obedience and be reliant upon the Holy Spirit as we must be reliant upon the Holy Spirit. And he did that so that he could be the perfect sacrifice and give himself up as an atonement for our sins upon the cross. And in exchange, what took place is His righteousness was given to us. Our unrighteousness was removed and His righteousness was placed upon. And we were saved by what God had done through Christ. And we continue to be saved by this gospel message that we walk in and that we trust and that we share. In Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes of it this way, For God... And this can all be stated, all of these things that I just mentioned about the truth of our salvation, with assurance. We can state it with assurance because it's something God has done. And He tells us about it in His Word. That's why it's so important for us to call to Him. For God listens and acts in response to our greatest need, He gives us His Word. And his word is trustworthy to the end. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. It is the word of God that David turns to in verse 6 the words of the Lord. That's what he goes to. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in the furnace, on the ground, purified seven times. This is what David turns to. After all he's going through, he he realizes God is going to do a saving work. How do I know that? I can trust his word. And he turns to his word and he likens it to this pure silver, pure words, refined silver. And just think about the verses we've already traversed, church family. And how this has been a journey of emotions that we've gone through with David. David starts out with confession, recognizing he needs help. Save, O Lord. Help, God. That's his request for salvation. And he's followed immediately after this initial declaration of an immediate series of curses against those who are vile and who are stating what is wrong and leading people astray bringing about great heartache and devastation. And then the appeal turns to the Lord. For if nothing is done, he says, if nothing is done, all is going to be lost. So I have to go before the Lord and say, God, do something. And the Lord hears the cry. He is aware of the needs of the people who are suffering. Those who acknowledge their need to the Lord. And God be trusted to respond, to arise and to act decisively, to bring about the salvation and to deliver those who are suffering. And this is all available to David. This is all available to us. This is all available to David because the word of God was preserved. The word of God was studied and looked to. The word of God was impressed upon David. In Joshua 1.8, I would think this would be something David would have had at the forefront of his mind. Joshua 1.8 reads, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." David recognizes the preciousness of God's words and likens it to silver being refined in a furnace. Precious words of God. Not those worthless words, not those words that have nothing of value, which is what he was despising earlier on. He likens this to silver refined in a fire seven times. And I had to do some research on silver because I'm not that well-versed in metal ores and how you bring about the purities of them. But as it turns out, it's not like gold that you can find in a nugget. Silver is mixed in with lots of other materials in the ground. You can't just find a chunk of silver. I mean, you can, but that's pretty rare. And so what needs to happen is you gather these materials, this ore, and then you have to do something with it to extract, extract the silver, the purities of the silver. And since the 16th century, there's been a chemical process that's been used to rapidly speed up that process. In biblical times, fire had to be used, a fire so hot that it had to be over almost 2,000 degrees to get to the melting point of silver so that then the silver could flow and be separated and purified. Caleb walked in on me yesterday while I was doing some sermon prep, and I was watching how smelting is done. And this is with a modern contraption, mind you. And this guy had this gas-fired foundry, like this smelting device. And it it was tough for him to get it to 2,000 degrees. So imagine in biblical times having to do this same type of work without some of the finer arts that we might have now to bring about fire in a condensed way. And David is saying, God's word is... It's like, it's like silver refined in the fire seven times. This work that's going into it, making it pure, seven times. So not only the work aspect, but now you have the, the biblical numerology of seven also lumped in here. God is, or David is saying, that is the treasure of these words. Not only is it difficult to bring out silver refined once, but seven times. And what's clearly being stated here is that God's word is pure. There are no impurities left. There is nothing there that would lead you astray. Pure goodness. And it can be trusted without fail. There is no contamination within God's word. And that's why we hold God's word so precious to us while we study God's word and spend time in it. Hiding it in our hearts so that it will guide us. We have this same treasure. But it can be difficult to give ourselves over to the working of God's word. We can read this. We can see David talk about how good it is, how pure it is. And our minds who say, yeah, that's right. God's word is so good. It's pure without fail. And yet, what do we put in front of us? Do we always put God's word in front of us? No, it, we live life. And so there are other things that come before us. And in fact, some of those other things are kind of enticing. So we actually prefer them over God's word. And then we're put in the spot of now we have to sift out well, what's good, what's right, what's wrong? And if you're not well grounded in God's word, it's easy to get confused. It's easy to get confused. We put empty things in front of us, even lies. We knowingly will do this. And then without the truth of God's word readily available to us, we might get caught up in those lies. We want to be like David, pursuing the Word of God, trustworthy Word of God, refined like silver seven times in the fire. Church, the Word of God has nothing of equal value to, to it. I mean, it is, it is the ultimate. And I, I know I'm embarrassed when I think about, well, what, what, do, what are the things I, I consider and put in front of me? Maybe you're similar. You, you find that you're intaking things that aren't the pure word of God. And you're like, well, why did that end up in front of me? Or why would I prefer this over that? When I know how good God's word can be to guide me. I am grateful. I'm grateful for God's word because it is so helpful to discern right from wrong. And as elders, our hope is that as we teach and instruct in God's word, it'll continue to have a refining effect on all of us. That it'll be an encouragement to the church body to spend time, just as as any of us who get up here and, and preach, spend time searching God's word for truth so that we can share it with the rest of us, knowing God's word will work It'll work while we sing it. It'll work while we pray it. It'll work while we sit under the preaching of it. It's God's word. God's word works when we pray through it. It's what we need. And we have these two precious treasures that help us get through life. We have the word of truth and the spirit of truth. And as followers of Christ. When those things are working together, we can be saved from a lot of the lies and deception that others readily buy into. We're saved from a state of confusion that without those, we would be like in a large sea without a paddle. All this information wondering, well, which way do I go? How do I sort this out? God doesn't leave us there though. He gives us his word. He says, take this. It's my gift to you. Use it to guide you in life. With God's word, we're left with a question. As we go into these last two verses, similar question to what David was going to be left with. What do you listen to? What what do you listen to? That's the question. What words do we listen to? This is the last point. Words we listen to, verses seven and eight verse 7, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. There's this first section. It says here that God will keep His words. He's going to keep those who believe His words. He's going to keep His word forever. In verse 5, which we looked at earlier, We know that God would also keep those who seek the Lord and his salvation. So God will keep his words, and he's going to keep those who turn to him. Even those that might be plundered or those who are needy, who can only groan, can be kept by the Lord. And he takes them and places them in his safekeeping. The Lord is trustworthy in his word, and he's trustworthy in his ability to keep those who belong to him. The type of salvation that's brought about by the Lord's working church, I want you to hear this, will last forever. His word will not perish, and the salvation that he gives away will not perish. It will last forever. And this is our state as believers, forever in the arms of God, held by him, never taken away from him. This was David's state. This is what we call the already but the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. So, If you haven't heard that before, the already but the not yet means Jesus Christ is on his throne, okay? He has been inaugurated. He is king. But the kingdom, the kingdom that we're longing for has not been consummated, the already but the not yet. So we, we have our full faith and assurance in Christ And yet we live in this life waiting for the full consummation of his kingdom and the ushering in of all those who will be part of the kingdom. So that's one aspect of what we're going to listen to, verse 7. But then there's verse 8, the last verse in, in this passage. It says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is very much a declaration of what is still going on around David, okay? Do you realize this? Where we started the the passage and where we end, David's circumstances haven't largely changed. There's still this vileness, this wickedness, and he recognizes that. His circumstances haven't appreciably changed. But what has changed is... He's gone through the process of confessing. God, I I need to be saved. I need you, Lord Jesus. David didn't say Lord Jesus. He cried out to God. We can cry out Lord Jesus because we know that's the manifestation of God's plan for salvation is in his son. David was in such a state where he was lamenting his circumstances. The ungodliness that was surrounding him early in the psalm. But as he worked through this lament, as he worked through this process at the end, he realizes, I have a couple choices here. I can stay in this situation of lament because there's still vileness around me. Or I can say, no, God's got this. He's got a plan. His salvation is for sure. And I can trust him. I can trust him to protect just like he said he would. It brings David to a place of peace. This is the gospel message, church. This is the gospel worked out in real life. That we can know that God can keep us even when we might be surrounded by those who would want to destroy us. But once God has us, he keeps us. We can trust that. Or we can turn away and say, No, God doesn't have this. It's, these circumstances can't be overcome by the power of God. And that would be a lie. God can do so much more than we give him credit for at times. That's why it's so helpful to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ, because we can encourage each other. We can see when, when, when one another is starting to slip and we can say, Oh, don't, don't go down that, that road, brother, or young man, or young lady. That's a lie. I've, I've been down that path, and it, it was horrendous. It cost me dearly. Let's turn to the word of God together. Let's talk about this. Let's work together to see what the truth of the matter really is, because there are so many lies that can get us ensnared and take us down a wrong path. But then when we turn to God's word, we say, that's right, this is good. This is pure. This is like silver refined in the fire seven times trustworthy without in any impurities helpful for guiding me in life not tarnished not alterable that's the righteousness of Christ coming through the truthfulness of what god has done in his son therefore our ears must be tuned in to hear what is true and right be ready to decipher what is wrong and say i That is not right. That is not what God's word says. And I'm not going to believe that. We want to hear God's word. We want to hear God's word speak over the vileness that we might hear and trust what he has to say. God has declared his glory and his goodness. And it's clearly stated in the scriptures, clearly given to us in his word. And like I mentioned just a little while ago, we get the great privilege of having God's word. It's ours. We can study it. We can read it. We can share it with our children. We can sing it in songs of praise. We can pray God's word. We can meditate upon it. And not a single word of God's will fail. His word will last forever. Jesus made a declaration to his followers in, the, in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Law and prophets is another way of saying the scriptures, the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's word will last forever it will not pass away until it has worked fully its intention. And this is a wonderful reminder that we can call to him. We can call to the one who has given his word. And God listens and he responds to us, meeting our greatest need, providing us with salvation. David called out to the Lord. He didn't deny his circumstances. He didn't say, everything's good, God, I, I got this. He called out to the Lord and said, Lord, save me, help me. The circumstances were horrid, and the enemy was surrounding him. That's what lies and emptiness and deception, that's what they do. They they tend to surround us and get us stuck in the mire. David didn't deny this at all. In fact, it's very clear that these things tore him up. Like it It was heavy upon David as this psalm was penned. But what he did was acknowledge his need for God to save him. He went there. He said, I need to be saved. And God, you're the one that can do that. He made known his heart cry. He freely denounced what was worthless with those very strong words. He denounced it and said, that's not what I want to be a part of. Lord, cut off the lips of the evil one. Stop the tongue of the vile. And he came to a place where he emphatically knew that God would bring about a plan of rescue. Like a force that could, be, could not be stopped, God acts. And God continues to act. He will not stop in bringing about his full end. His purpose is for salvation, church, for our salvation. And he will bring it about. Our victor is Christ, and our position is secure in Him. Praise be to God for the work that only He could do, and for only He can do, and He continues to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have gone through this section of Psalms, Psalm 12, which was a cry. A lament, a, a heartache had by David that all around him was, was destruction and worthless words, that there was no one faithful to walk through life with him. And he did what we need to do. He, he cried out to you, Lord, for salvation. He thought about the scriptures that he knew, that he had hidden in his heart, that he had available to him to read. And that brought about Such a change in his demeanor. It didn't change his circumstances, but it did change where he was focused. And he became focused upon you. And at the end of this psalm, much like the life we're living right now, our circumstances haven't appreciably changed from when we first got here, Lord. But our prayer is that our focus has, that we would be more and more focused upon you, upon the word that you have given to us to guide us in life. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for allowing us to be in community, to have our brothers and sisters to walk side by side in this life. Continue to strengthen us in truth. Continue to strengthen us in our faith in you. Thank you for bringing about salvation, something that only you could do. We could never do it, Lord. We needed a, a perfect sacrifice which we could never render. We could never muster up. You provided Jesus, your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.